Well, if you were here this morning, you'll know that we turn to the first chapter in the prophecy of Ezekiel. And I wasn't quite sure whether I was going to return to Ezekiel when I started the service this morning, but before the end I was. And we're going to the second chapter, much shorter chapter, but a great deal of truth in it. And I believe something that God wants to say to us and say to me. Chapter 2 of Ezekiel then, he said to me, now let's get the context, he has seen this great vision that we referred to this morning, and when I saw it, says the last verse of chapter 1, I fell face down and heard the voice of one speaking, and he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn, Say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, and whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you, and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and in it was a scroll which he unrolled before me, on both sides of which were written words of lament and mourning, and woe. Amen. And we ask God to open his word to us. Now let's be clear. I'm not casting you in the role of the Israelites and me in the role of Ezekiel when I read that. I didn't mean you to assume that I'm saying you are this rebellious house, unless the hat fits. But we'll, we'll turn to that. I'm sitting under this teaching every bit as much as I deliver it out there. We, we left Ezekiel this morning by the Kibar Canal or the Kibar River in the land of Babylon. And we left him in awe and worship because he had seen a vision of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And the whole thrust of the turning to that passage was how desperately we need to get a glimpse of the greatness of our God. Just like Ezekiel did here, or Isaiah in the temple, or John on Patmos, to get a vision of the greatness of God. And here in a depressing refugee camp, east of the city of Babylon in a place called Tel Abib, Ezekiel had lived, you'll remember, for five long years since his deportation from his home in Jerusalem. The atmosphere was one of misery and apathy and despair. 
a, a scraping out an existence was the order of each day in this refugee camp. And remember that Ezekiel was 30 years old and he had really come to that stage when he should be launching out on his career as a priest, but the war had put an end to all that. A refugee, a captive in a hostile land, sitting down by the rivers of Babylon, but certainly with nothing to, to sing about. And then we considered this morning in the northern sky that vision that he received. I just put out this one because we discussed this morning how several people have tried to interpret chapter 1 and perhaps the one that's most widely used and respected is that of Sir Peter Robeson, this particular uh, version. But here was this approaching whirlwind and in the whirlwind an immense cloud surrounded by brilliant light and in the center of this light a fire that was glowing like molten metal in a crucible, lightning flashing everywhere. And as the storm and the clouds moved closer, Ezekiel began to perceive four amazing heavenly creatures, colossal cherubim, an incredible means of transport that was out with his normal capacity for description outside any earthly design, moving with great speed, seemingly in all directions, full of eyes, covering the, the whole earth as he, as he viewed it, all seeing, all powerful, and above the cherubim a vast Pure expanse and above the expanse a throne. I mean, what a, what a scene this was. A throne of pure sapphire, we read. And on the throne, the Lord God Almighty, glowing as though fire, uh, 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 full of fire and surrounded by a beautiful spectrum of light like the radiance of the rainbow. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, as Ezekiel describes it. And when I saw it, I fell face down, says Ezekiel. Have you ever felt the presence of God so powerfully that you just couldn't stand? You had to prostrate yourself before him. Now, now I'm, I'm not wanting some pretentious, artificial behavior, but how desperately we need to get such a vision of God, even if it's in the quiet place with no one's around, where we just feel so overwhelmed by his presence that we, we really must prostrate ourselves before him. How wonderful that would be. And if you read the accounts of revival, and last Sunday night in a united service in Ballinahinch, I had the privilege of speaking on the whole question of God's more, of the revival, those things that happened back in the United States in the 18th century and in the 19th century and under Wesley and Whitfield in the 18th century and then the great movement that affected Northern Ireland in 1859 but started in the United States and then 1901 in Korea, 19 1904 in Wales, 1948 in the Outer Hebrides, these great movements of the Spirit of God. And when we read about them, we see people so overwhelmed. The, the, the significant characteristic of such a movement is an awareness of the greatness of God. How desperately we need such an experience. And Ezekiel certainly had that. And the instruction came from God, Son of man, stand up on your feet. And I will 
speak to you. God has his own way of doing things, and this is typical, because it is really only after we have fallen on our faces, whether literally or metaphorically, when we're so aware of the, 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 our littleness against God's greatness, it, it's only when, when we have experienced that and, and recognized our puniness in God's greatness that, that we really can stand up in his strength. I, I was just saying to some folk this week again, I spoke to a men's breakfast yesterday morning in, in, in Newcastle, and there was an interview session, and some folk asked me what it was like. Um, God didn't trust me with any pastoral work until I was almost 50 years of age. And prior to that, I'd been practicing and teaching engineering at the two universities here. But some folks said to me, and I've said this before in public, you know, you'll take to this whole ministry thing like a duck to water. Do you know the trouble is that I believed them? I, I really did. And it was a desperate mistake to make because I thought initially that somehow I can do this. And I had some disasters in the pulpit. As though God withdrew and sat in the pew and said, let's see how you get on in your own strength. You see, it is so different. One could mount the pulpit here with a well-prepared lecture. But unless God, the Holy Spirit, takes what you're saying and takes you and makes you realize how dependent you are, there is nothing going to be done that would be substantive or for eternity. No real spiritual work. No real. In the kingdom of God, we've got to recognize and we've got to feel our weakness before we can know his strength. We've got to submit to his sovereign authority. We need the Spirit of God to come and help and, and your Sunday school teachers and those who are leading the church here and, and, and the pastor who will one day come again and mount this pulpit, how desperately they need to recognize our dependence upon the Spirit of God to do any effective work for him. And, you know, the logic of it is very clear. If all it required was intellect, then the bright people would find grace and receptiveness in God's eyes and all the thickies would go to a lost eternity and God has ordained it differently. We need to recognize our dependence upon him. And it's when we do that Jesus Christ becomes a reality to us and things take on a whole new perspective. But notice, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. But don't miss the significance of, of the, 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 the next sentence in the inspired record. The Spirit of God came into me and raised me to my feet. Wow. Ezekiel rose to his feet, not in his own strength, but in the strength of the Spirit of the living God. He realized his weakness. He fell down when he saw this amazing image of God. When he realized how great the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob was, and he saw him in all his majesty, he just was crumpled. He's feeling so tiny. And then God, by his Spirit, as he gives the command, stand to your feet, he then comes and he raises him to his feet. And I need to learn that. We all need to learn that. We are prone to the error of Moses. You remember how Moses, having been raised in the household of Pharaoh and having that wonderful education and training program for those first 40 years of his life, Moses really did believe, I can serve my people. And you remember the story very well, how he went out and he got involved in that fight, and he did it in his own strength. 
And God had to send him away for 40 years to come to terms with the fact that his own strength would never be enough. Moses needed to learn to stand up in the strength of the Lord God Almighty. And when God sent him back to Pharaoh, he was now a humbled man. I can't talk. I don't have any oratory. Lord, I'm not able for this. Such a different person left Egypt 40 years before to the one who's now going back, not in his own strength, but in the, the strength of God, as cockiness, his self-confidence, completely gone. This is the way God operates. He may test us. He may have to let us discover the hard way that we need him. We need to learn his way of doing things. Or he may... Coaxes like a parent coaxing an infant to, to, to make those first faltering steps. God will do it his way. The difficulty arises when we try to do the things that God has given us to do in our own strength. I've made the point. I can move on. The other thing, as I said this morning, is to start doing the things that God has never called us to and never equipped us for. You can be sure that God has equipped Windsor Baptist Church with all the gifts that are necessary to do the job that he's calling you to do. But you as members need to be putting those gifts on the altar and you as leaders need to be seeking to recognize those gifts in order to use them to the glory of God in this place. And any gifts that are missing, God will put your eyes Unto those who can bring them into your midst and use them to the glory of God in this place. There is a corporate responsibility on us to recognize that God always equips for the tasks that he asks us to do. You know, the, the scriptures are so full of this. And, and it comes in, in a variety of different ways. Because we, we find, for example, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is, is love. Well, you know, God says, this is my command that you love one another. But do, do, do I, am I to sort of work that up with it? No, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. I, I will come and, and give you all you need to exercise love, even in situations where it is extremely difficult and the people that I'm asking you to love are not particularly lovely. Rejoice in the Lord always, says the Scripture. But remember that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. I will come and bring this. Live at peace with all men uh, to seek peace and pursue it, the Scriptures say. But the fruit of the Spirit is peace. God doesn't just ask for these things. He says, I, I don't only ask you to stand up. I, I help you to stand up. I don't ask you to love. I shed love abroad in your heart and joy and peace. And the Bible says, run with patience the race that is set before you. But the fruit of the Spirit is Patience, And one could go on with kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. All of these things God demands from us but also equips us with. How we need to, 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 to recognize that. Ezekiel was prostrate, awestruck at the vision of the glory of God. And when the command came to stand up, it was accompanied by the power and the help to do so. And then he was commissioned for service. Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation. Sometimes God asks for volunteers. But not always. 
Isaiah got that wonderful vision of the Lord described in the sixth chapter of the prophecy that goes under his name. He was shattered. He was humbled. He, 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 was, he felt unclean in the presence of God. The seraph was ordered, you remember, to go and touch his lips with the burning coal from the altar to pronounce him clean. His sins were forgiven. But God still asked for volunteers. Whom shall I send? Who will, who will go for us? Isaiah was not a conscript, but Ezekiel was. He was a conscript. Ezekiel was no volunteer. He was one of God's conscripts, rather like Saul of Tarsus, who subsequently became Paul. Remember God's word to the rebel Pharisee just outside Jerusalem. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. God might call for volunteers. There may be some of you tonight and God is conscripting you. Here's what I want you to do. The question is this. Are we listening? I had the privilege on three occasions to visit a little church in Volochysk in the, near the Carpathian Mountains in the Ukraine. And uh, the pastor there, a godly man, I feel a spiritual midget in his company, man who has been imprisoned for his faith on more than one occasion. But he, he frequently looks out on the congregation and will just name someone and say, Brian or Roy, come on up and tell us what God has been saying to you this week. Wow, we'd empty the churches pretty quickly. <laughs> and, and his congregation, and it's a huge congregation now, but they're listening to God. You know, they're listening. They're expecting God to speak. It wouldn't it be a strange relationship where all the conversation was one way. God is saying things to us. Saying things to me. Are we listening? Are we listening to God? Every child of God has kingdom business to attend to. If you have come to know Jesus savingly, then you have an ambassadorial role and your Lord and Master is speaking to you. He has business for you to do. And you can be assured that he's enabling you to do that business. Ezekiel was sent by God to his own people in exile, the Israelites. And this commissioning by God vested him with great authority. But it is maybe disturbing to discover the sequel to this. Because he's commissioned and he's equipped by God and therefore he comes with all the necessary tools to do what God requires of him. He has got up in the strength of the Almighty. There isn't any doubt about his calling. But this is no guarantee of success as this world measures success. And we need to know that. We need to know that. We need to learn that. Remember, the world rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been thinking of that. The world crucified him. The Son of God, who spoke with divine wisdom and explained the truth with wisdom that was 
that I'm incapable of and that any other preacher is incapable of, and yet many walked away unconvinced. Wow. By human criteria, the ministry of Jesus Christ failed. By human criteria. He was despised. He was rejected on an enormous scale. Ultimately crucified. You see, the way that God measures success was something Ezekiel had to learn. Whether they listen to you or fail to listen, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And I say again, I don't want anybody going home misunderstanding me. I'm not casting myself in the mold of Ezekiel with you as the stubborn, unbelieving Israel. I say it again. God knows my heart. He knows the scale of my sinful stubbornness. He knows how far I fall short even of my own understanding of what is right, let alone his absolutely perfect standards. But let us not duck the thrust of what God is saying to us from this passage. The Holy Spirit is saying something to us. There is a malaise among us evangelicals. We have no right to point the finger of cynical criticism at the more liberal wing of the church. Are we listening to God? Are we tuned into what the Almighty is saying to us? Have we become sermon testers? And I fear so often that has been the, the spirit in which I've gone to church and listened with some sort of an academic hat on, listening to what the preacher said, setting it against my concept of, of, of what is sound. I really should be listening for God to speak. Lord, are we listening? Are we listening? Discussing faith issues, discussing the, the, the whole business of our, of our profession, but unconvincing in the way we're living it out. Look, believe me, I'm sitting under the teaching of this chapter. But I want to be more convincing. Has God changed? Of course not. Well, we know God cannot change. Then, at least, do we conclude, conclude, well, he does things differently now. This is the excuse that we conservative evangelicals have made for decades in order to justify the rather dull brand of Christianity that we're, we're peddling. That somehow God does things differently. That, that, it's not that God has changed, we imply. It's just that this is not one of those times in which he, he works in the way that this... It's a cop-out. It really is a cop-out. We really mustn't, I, I keep coming back to this because this is what God is saying to me. We must not accept the current mundane way in which we express the Christian faith. There is much more that God wants to do in Windsor Baptist Church, in Ballinahidge, and throughout the whole body of Christ, so much more. And, and you know, the, 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 the current tendency is that we, we, we somehow are looking for God to do it in some way that's going to be pretty easy on us. I, I'm getting on a bit now. And 
as I try to listen to God and turn to this holy word, and I'm wondering, Lord, I do see a great mismatch between the way in which we're doing church today and the outcome of our prayer times. What is it that's missing? Why? Where are the blockages? What is it that's stopping us seeing a great movement of the Spirit of God? What is it that's going to turn the drip feed into several coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ? As has happened in other days and is happening today in parts of Central and South America, parts of China, when we hear the the, the, the reports from mission fields, we're hearing of wonderful things. Does it always have to be away over there? And do you know what God's saying to me? There was a recent commentary on the way in which the Irish rugby team uh, failed in the World Cup and one of the most renowned experts said they just failed to do all the simple things right. That's what God's saying to me. You know, he's saying when you start taking my word seriously, it's not enough to pray. There are conditions attached to prayer. Of course I'm the sovereign God who can, but we, 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 I'm working through you and there are conditions to be met. And here's what God seems to be saying to me. And I wrote it down a few days ago in preparation, in fact, for last Sunday night, but I repeat it tonight. Just do the simple things I ask. Be honest in all your dealings. Let your word be your bond. Be known in your family, your community, and your work for your transparent integrity. Look out for each other. And be quick to help your neighbor. Resist the modern preoccupation with things. Give me your tithe and your offerings and do it wholeheartedly. Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Fight against the ugly preoccupation with self that characterizes this age. Combat lust in a sex-crazed society. Stand for justice for all. Be advocates for those who cannot speak for themselves. And in these ways your love for me and your neighbor will be evident for all to see And I will become so obvious in your lives that the wells of my grace and my power will overflow in revival. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Whether we listen or fail to listen, I don't find that easy. But I have a fear that Paul expressed since God called me into the ministry. It's a fear that he expressed in his letter to Corinth After he had preached to others, he himself would be disqualified. You know there is a strong case, and my time's gone and I'm drawing to a close, but there is a strong case, I realize, for user-friendly services. Don't don't misunderstand me. I I think we want to be seeker-sensitive, we want to be contemporary, we want to scratch where people are itching. All of that is true. We want to answer the question that people are asking. But there are truths that are never going to be popular. There are aspects of the Word of God that are not going to sit well with modern philosophical thinking. And God says to us, you must speak my words to them whether they listen or fail to listen. There are things in this book that I recoil from. Things that I find, oh God, I don't understand that. I don't even like that. I I, I can't understand why you behaved in that way. But I've got to recognize that it's not God who's in the dock, it's me. He does all things right. And other times when I'm ashamed of God, God forbid, 
We've got to declare the whole counsel of this book. We've got to listen to God. We've got to be his witnesses, even when it's not popular. We've got to stand up for truth as he presents it. He alone is the source of truth. We're called to be gracious. We're called to be sympathetic. We're called to be loving. We're called to be considerate and tactful. All those things. But we're called to be faithful to this book. Whatever it costs, however popular or unpopular it is. And the result of such fidelity may well be, as Ezekiel found and as God told him it would be, like living among scorpions with briars and thorns all around. And yet, in the end of the day, while the message he was given was not an easy one to deliver, as we move into the following chapter, we find that when he ate it, he found that it tasted as sweet as honey in his mouth. There is something very sweet and beautiful as the Spirit of God witnesses with your spirit, as individuals and as a church, when you know you're being faithful to him. And I got Andy, and I, I, I don't know this congregation. There are folk I look down and I, I know who you are. And I know those uh, folk that I can recognize. You know the Lord Jesus. But maybe you're here tonight. And you don't know Jesus. You've never trusted him. And, and how I want to reach out and urge you to recognize the, the, the grace of God that, that we were recalling as we remembered him at the table and as I simply illustrate with the three crosses here, but with our focus on that central cross. And what it says to me is, my God who is altogether holy and altogether just and altogether compassionate and loving, because of his justice he draws lines in the sand and he cannot ignore your sin or mine and the mechanism by which he has dealt with it is by sending his son to die on the cross, as we sang and considered earlier. But the consequences of rejecting that are horrendous. And we've got to recognize that. And that's not popular today. Oh, the gracious aspect of God, that's acceptable. But a God who says, outside of Jesus Christ, my son, there is no salvation. Only eternal loss. We don't hear much of it today. I'm sure it's preached from this pulpit, but I mention it to you again. We've got to go out to a lost world, yes, and present Jesus, but also not be ashamed of a God who declares that outside of him there is no alternative, no plan B, no other way. Jesus and Jesus only. Let's bow our heads. And we're going to sing in a moment... A wonderful hymn, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder. But Lord, as we recall just how great you are, we realize also that while you're a loving God, a compassionate God, who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, oh God, help us to realize that we have a twofold message to a lost world. A message of hope and joy and great news. But may we also be faithful in declaring that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 
that there is no universal salvation. That it is Jesus and Jesus only. Make us faithful, Lord. Lift us up in your strength and empower us to go into the week that lies ahead taking opportunities as you give them to speak for Jesus, to sound a note of hope, but where it is appropriate to graciously sound a warning. Hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.